How's everyone this morning? We got some people that are good. That's awesome. Who's 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 okay this morning? Everyone okay? Okay, you're here with me. That's awesome. Have you ever been in a situation where you got something wrong? You had a wrong idea or a misconception about something? Yeah, I, I think we can all testify to that. Well, some of you who don't know, some of you think I'm just Canadian. I do have a Canadian passport. I wasn't born there, okay? I grew up in South Africa. Thank you. Thank you. And I used to be a surfer. Can you imagine that? I had this long blonde hair and, you know, those were different days. I didn't have a belly. (laughs) Well, when I was 19, I went with some friends to their beach cottage down on the coast near Mossel Bay. Those from South Africa will know where that is. It's between Cape Town and Port Elizabeth. It was a warm summer morning. And we had all had breakfast, and we were looking out over the ocean. And in the, dust, in the distance, we saw this pot of dolphins, and they were coming closer. And I thought this was my chance. I got excited, and I grabbed my surfboard, and I ran down to the beach, hopped in the water, and my adrenaline was pumping, and I started paddling frantically on my surfboard so that I didn't miss these dolphins. Then all of a sudden, I saw something. A lone dorsal fin. And it was coming towards me. I thought, what if this is a shark? <laughs> the idea of dolphins quickly disappeared. You know, this was a lone shark. Dolphins usually travel in pods, so where are the other fins? So I decided I didn't want to wait around to see what would happen. And I paddled in as fast as I did coming out. <laughs> I think I probably got it wrong. You know, probably was a dolphin, and I missed my chance. I still haven't swum with dolphins yet, but at least I have all my limbs. <laughs> I was so convinced that it was a shark, but it probably was just a dolphin. And it's so funny sometimes that we can have a misconception or wrong perspective about something. Sometimes we think a shark's coming to get us, but maybe it's just a dolphin coming to play with us. And I think a lot of people have a misconception about who God is. And they think God's coming to harm them, coming to hurt them, coming to judge them. But that's not really who God is. God's coming to provide hope. He's coming to heal you. He's coming to love you. He's coming to give you a hope and a a future and a purpose. He's coming to have a relationship with you. Here at SBUC, we're looking at the book of John. We're taking time to go through the seven weeks of the I Am statements, Jesus' claims about himself. I think it's important what Jesus says about himself, because many times we hear, uh, you know, what he's doing, but it's good to take the time to pause and actually listen to what he says about himself. Now, not just to hear what he's done, but to see who he really is. I don't want to just know what God can do. I want to know him. I just don't want to know about him. I actually want to know him. So last week, Robin spoke about the saying, I am the bread of life. Today, we're going to take a look at Jesus' saying in John 8, verse 12. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So what's the context here? For that, we need to go back a chapter to chapter 7. It was the Feast of Tabernacles. 
The Feast of Tabernacles was instituted by God and was designed as a remembrance of how God sustained the Israelites in their 40 years in the wilderness. It lasted a week and was in the fall. This particular Feast of Tabernacles happened to be six months before Jesus went to the cross. Jesus went secretly to this particular feast because the Jews were lying in wait and trying to kill him. Not only until halfway during the feast did Jesus actually go to the temple courts and begin to teach. What follows the story is in verse 12, and it's part of that ministry that Jesus had during this Feast of Tabernacles. So Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. But the Pharisees said to them, here you are appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. We've already seen this uh, conflict start to escalate, and it will continue to escalate through the chapter of John until this final six months, and until it reaches full, full flame in Passion Week and takes him to the cross in God's perfect time. But the things that Jesus said were the things that escalated this anger with the religious leaders. And one of these statements is here in verse 12. So when Jesus said, I am the light of the world, they knew exactly what he was claiming. This is a notable and memorable statement, and I think we're all familiar with this statement. But I don't think that we may fully understand the essence of this and the way the Jewish leaders received it. I'm going to try to help you with that. So let's break down this narrative into some subsections so we can track our way. Let's start off with the actual area where Jesus was. And when I say that, I mean the exact location where Jesus spoke these words. That'll be our first point. So he spoke these words while teaching in the temple court near the place where the offerings were put. We took offering this morning. In the temple days, it was a little different. I'm going to start there because it sets up everything. These are remarkable words, and he doesn't speak these words out of nowhere in a vacuum. There's a compelling scene that Jesus captures And we see this already in chapter 7, verses 37 to 38, when he talked about being the living water. He said that at the same time, they were doing a ritual remembering the provision of water in the wilderness, which was a daily part of the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles. When the Israelites were in the wilderness, they complained to Moses, we don't have any water to drink. So Moses went to God. God told him, speak to the rock. And it will pour water for the people. Instead of speaking to the rock, Moses hits the rock twice with his staff. Water uh, water comes out and feeds the people. But we know what happened to Moses. He wasn't able to enter the promised land. So Jesus, when he said that he was the living water, and if anyone drank of that water, they would never thirst. And he was contrasting this spiritual water with the water poured out in the ritual going on next to him. Jesus had a way of capturing these moments and turning it to himself. And he does the same thing here. It's really important to know where he is. He was in the temple and he was in the area where the offerings were put. Now, one of the things people came when they did when they came to the temple was to give money. And it was in this courtyard called the court of the woman. It was a courtyard beyond that. And that was for the Gentiles. Everyone could come there but once you left the court of the gentiles and came in you came to this court of the woman where men and women could come but only jewish or proselytes women could know further because there was a court inside that which was for the priests only so naturally they put the places to give the offerings where men and women could go 
And it was at that place as well that probably that widow gave her last two mites, her last two coins. And in this whole area, there was probably tens of thousands of people because this was the Feast of Tabernacles. Everyone came from everywhere to be there. That's where Jesus is. He's in this court of the woman. And it would probably be the most packed area in the temple. Let's keep that in mind. So we go back to verse 12. He spoke to them while he'd been speaking. He said, I'm the light of the world. Who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He didn't say, I am a light. He didn't say, I am a light in Jerusalem or Judah. Maybe some of the teachers might have said something like that. But he said, I am the light. Right? That's exclusive. It's all-encompassing. And most importantly, it's a direct claim to be the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah. And these leaders knew it. They were very, very familiar with the Messianic prophecies in Isaiah 42, 49, 50, and 53. And these Messianic chapters talk about this Messiah being a slave or servant to Jehovah. Chapter 42, you have this verse here where the father speaks of the Messiah, his servant. He says, here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him. So here the prophecy is talking about the coming of the Messiah and the empowering of the Holy Spirit. It goes on in verse 6 to say, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you. I will make you to be a covenant to the people and a light to the nations. So as a light to the nations, it says to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, those who dwell in darkness from prison. So he says here that this Jehovah says here to the, about the Messiah, that he will be a light to the world. Again, in Isaiah 49, here the servant of Jehovah is presented in verse six. Is it too small a thing that you should be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel? I have kept. I will also make you a light for the nations that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So this is what the Lord says, the redeemer, the Holy one of Israel. This is directly from God. And the Messiah here is to be a light of the world. So when Jesus says, I'm the light of the world, he is making the claim to be this prophesied Messiah. John even begins his gospel with reference to this. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God. And the word was God in him was life. And that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. The true light, that light gives man, uh, that gives light to every man was coming into the world. So right at the start of his gospel, John talks about and identifies this Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ as the light and giver of life. So light as we know, is a wonderful metaphor. It's an active power that dispels darkness. You know, when you open your window or door at, at nighttime, you know, the darkness doesn't come flooding in, right? No, the, the light, it dispels and pushes back the darkness. Darkness is just the mere absence of light. And Jesus Christ is the light of truth that dispels the darkness of lies. Jesus Christ is the light of wisdom that dispels the darkness of ignorance. Jesus Christ is the light of holiness that dispels the darkness of impurity. Jesus Christ is the light of joy that dispels the darkness of sorrow. Jesus Christ is the light of life that dispels the darkness of death. So to say I am the light of the world 
is to also identify yourself as God. Let's look at Psalm 4, 6. Many, Lord, are asking, who will bring us prosperity? Let the light of your face shine upon us. Psalm 27, verse 1 says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. 1 John 1, 5 says, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. They understood what he was saying. He was claiming to be God. He was claiming to be the Messiah, the light. So the question comes up, why here? Why now? Why does he ask that? Back in, sorry, why does he say that? Back in chapter 7, verse 37, he says, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And then he spoke about these streams of living water that would flow from the innermost being of those who believed. He said that because he's capturing this moment of this ritual that's, come, that's going on behind him. And he turned it to himself. And he does exactly the same thing here. So in order to grasp what's happening, there was another feast that was also very important and it's happening at the same time at the Feast of Tabernacles. And he could have said, I'm the light of the world. And it would have made sense because the world was in darkness. We all understand that. And all of us are characterized in Ephesians 5.11 as doing the unfruitful works of darkness. We walk in the darkness. The way of the wicked is darkness. The scripture says the foolish heart is darkened. We're darkened in our understanding and excluded from the light of life. Scripture talks about that, so it's a common description. We've all been delivered out of the domain of darkness. So even in Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament, it says the fool walks in darkness. Isaiah said men substitute darkness for light. So Jesus could have just stood up and said, I'm the light of the world, and it would have had an impact using this metaphor of darkness, but there's far more going on here than just that. So in the Feast of Tabernacles, they also had these huge candelabras spread around this court of the woman. And as far as historians say, they would literally fill the court of women with light. Every night they would go around and light these candelabras and they would burn all night. The reason they did this was because the Feast of Tabernacles Feast of Tabernacles is they're celebrating this 40 years in the wilderness. And how do they know where they were going in the wilderness? They had a pillar of fire by night leading them. They were following this pillar. And to commemorate that, they had this illumination of the temple. And they let these candles and let them burn all night. So I can just visualize Jesus standing near maybe one of these big candelabras and maybe they just lit them or maybe it was the next morning and they'd already gone out and can imagine him saying, I am the light of the world. I never go out like these candelabras in me. You will have the light of life. It's a profound moment that Jesus captures and he brings to himself, just like the pillar of light in the night that led the Israelites to the promised land. He's saying, I am the light that will lead you to the kingdom of God. I will lead you to God, to heaven, to everlasting life. It's not a light to be just looked at or to be admired but it's a light to be followed. It moves. It needs to be followed. Jesus said, if any man will come after me and let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. He said to his disciples, follow me. They followed the cloud and the pillar and they were led to the promised land. And Jesus said, if you follow me, you will go in. You will, you follow me and this light will lead you all the way to receive the full promise of eternal life. So 
Jesus rather dramatically and powerfully and effectively. He captures the crowd in this stunning moment of this ritual. He says, I know the way out of darkness. I know the way out of the darkness of ignorance. I know the way out of the darkness of sin. I know the way out of the darkness of sorrow and sadness. I know the way out of the darkness of death. Follow me and I will lead you to eternal life. So what does it mean to follow? Just the word itself, follow me. The way it's used in the ancient usage, it's used of a soldier following his commander. It's used of a slave following his master, of someone following a wise counselor. It's used of someone following the law obediently. That's what it means to follow all of those things. So to follow Christ, we need to do that as a soldier follows his commander, as a slave follows his master, a person of ignorance follows a wise counselor, as a disobedient sinner turns to follow the law obediently. And to be a follower is to give yourself totally to Christ. So Jesus is not only claiming to be God, who is the true light, but to be this prophesied Messiah. He's captivating the people and and understand what he's saying. Certainly the leaders understood this because you see the antagonism that rises immediately. You see it in verse 13. The Pharisees said to him, here you are, appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. It's not true. Which is to say, you can't do that. Right? That's not how it works. They accused Jesus of having an invalid claim because he's making this claim himself. You're just boasting, they say. Why should we believe you? There are no witnesses to confirm this. So that's another calculated attack. And of course, they're saying that this is an illegal claim. You cannot claim anything by yourself. You need at least, what, two witnesses. And that's what Jesus does later in verse 17. He refers to this requirement of the law. He says, in your own law, it's written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. So they have... They're going on that legal aspect, this calculated attack against Jesus. It's a biblical law. You have to have at least two witnesses. You can't think that just because you say it, it's true. In fact, it's invalidated because you don't have any witnesses. This is how unbelief operates, by the way. Unbelief never has enough proof. His words alone should have been convincing enough. They had enough hearing of his words to know that he spoke like no other person. And that's what was, was it reported to them by the soldiers that were sent to arrest him in the last chapter. They couldn't even arrest him because his words were so compelling. They went back to the priest and they said, have you been overcome by this uh, deception? Or, you know, they, they, didn't, they weren't able to arrest him. His works of healings, power over de- disease, demons, death, and nature should have been enough for them. But unbelief never has enough proof. Go back to chapter 7, verse 17. Jesus says, Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. If you're willing to know the truth, you'll know the truth. If you're willing, you will know the teaching. These religious leaders, they weren't willing. Their unbelief made them ignorant. So you can be an unbeliever because you're ignorant. That's a bit of a situation, but... You know, you can just remove the ignorance and perhaps you'll believe. But the worst possible scenario is to be ignorant because you're an unbeliever. So that when you're given the proof, your unbelief locks you into your ignorance. 
That was them, these religious leaders. They weren't unbelievers because of ignorance. They were ignorant because of their unbelief. They didn't process anything he said to them. They didn't connect any of the multiple evidences. They just wanted him trapped and dead. And I would say, generally speaking, that if you, you want to be very careful if you're rejecting Jesus in unbelief. You're in a safer condition if your unbelief is because of ignorance than you are if your ignorance is because of your unbelief. That's terminal. Because if ignorance has been met with truth and you're unwilling to see it, then you're locked into the kind of ignorance that's hopeless. And John 7, 17, if you're willing, the truth is there. Are you willing? When somebody says, I don't believe the gospel, I don't believe Jesus is the son of God, I don't believe he's the Messiah, the savior of the world, there's usually two things you can say to them. Number one, that's such an amazing and astute conclusion that you've come to. You must have studied the entire Bible and spent countless months, years coming to that conclusion because the world is full of people, scholars, learned people. Now and over the centuries, we've studied the Bible and given their whole lives to studying and they're convinced that Jesus is who he said he was. So for you to overturn that, uh, you must have made some kind of extensive effort to understand everything in scripture. That's not true but it's probably quite humiliating for the person who probably hasn't even read the New Testament. The second thing you could say is, are you willing? Are you willing to believe? Because if your unbelief is because of ignorance, so that if ignorance is removed, you're willing. These weren't. The Pharisees, these leaders, they weren't willing. And I was thinking of a way to explain that in an example that might be more relevant to us in the modern world and I was thinking of a, a big jumbo jet, this big hunk of metal, right? Just say you uh, had heard about uh, these planes that could fly, this hunk of metal that could soar into the air, but you'd never seen one. You'd never heard about the science, how it all works. Um, you just kind of heard this, you know, it might be quite um, difficult to believe, but just say that you have, you're a scientist and you've done all the research. You know that it's possible. You've heard, you have friends that have gotten a plane, this hunk of metal, and flown in the sky. You have that testimony. You know, that's one thing. If you don't believe after all that, that's what I'm talking about here that the, the Pharisees were doing. So you go from this antagonism in verse 14, Jesus answered, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid. You know, Deuteronomy 19.15 talks about these two or three witnesses. That's for people who are liars. That works because we're all liars as humans. We live in a world of lies and deception. And so we have to confirm things with several people before maybe we can find the truth. But that doesn't apply to God. Jesus is saying, I'm not subject to all those laws that are meant for a world of liars. I know where I came from and I know where I'm going. Sabbath was made for man, was not for God. The law was made for man, not for God. I speak the truth because of who I am. So his answer is, first of all, my claim is valid because of who I am. I know where I'm from and I know where I'm going. And we know where he's from. The word became flesh and dwelled among us. But it was the eternal word who was with God. 
and I will know where I'm going. In John 17, Father, restore me to your glory I had with you before the world began. I came from the Father. I'm going back to the Father. But you don't know where I'm going, where I'm from, and you don't know where I'm going. In fact, they didn't even know what town he was from. They thought he was from Nazareth. They never bothered to check. This is in chapter uh, 7. You know, why would they? Their unbelief was confined to their willful ignorance. They didn't even check the records in the temple to see that he was born in Bethlehem, where the Messiah is to be born. And he was from the line of David, both father and mother. So he says, you don't know anything about me, even temporarily. You don't even know what town I'm from. Chapter 7, he says, uh, says, some thought he was from Galilee. The Messiah doesn't come from there. But he says, you think you know me and where I'm from? I've not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. They were trying to seize him and kill him, but they couldn't. And here he's saying it again. And he says, I know where I came from, and I know that he means God. I know where I'm going, back to God. I'm transcendent. I'm eternal. I am God. So their denial of his testimony is willful ignorance. Ignorance is cheap. It's common. Ignorance in the face of evidence is terminally deadly. Jesus says in verse 15, you judge by human standards. Your judgment is superficial. By the way, they judged everyone. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 7. A sermon on the mount when he said, do not judge or you too will be judged. Stop the judgment. That's what the leaders were doing on everybody, but they were judging according to the flesh. You don't know me. You don't know me at all, and yet you sit in judgment on me and judgment on my testimony. All you know is external. All you know is physical. And you don't even know the town that I came from. You haven't even checked the temple records. You don't know what you could know, and you're the judge of me like you're the judge of everyone else. That's what Jesus is saying to these leaders. And then he says, I pass judgment on no one in verse 15. And that way he means, I don't judge by human standards. Now, if you're a Christian, you judge people spiritually, right? You don't judge people superficially or by the external. You judge them spiritually. Pharisees, they judge superficially. Jesus says, I don't judge that way, but verse 16, but if I do judge, my decisions are true. And by the way, Jesus will judge. In chapter 5, verse 22, we read, Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. But according to verse 30 of that chapter 5, he says, He will judge in perfect harmony with the Father. Back in chapter 3, he said, He didn't come to judge, but to save the first time. For God sent His Son into the world, not to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. So that's the first time He came not to judge the world. But we know when he comes again, he will come to judge. He will be the great judge on the white throne, as we read in Revelations chapter 20, verse 11 to 12. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. So then Jesus, he goes to the second point. Not only because of who I am, 
from heaven, going back to heaven, sent by God, going back to God, in perfect coordination and harmony with God the Father. But there's a second reason. Okay, he says, and even in your own law, it talks about there being witness of two people and that it's true. I'll give you that, he says. I'm he who testifies about myself and the Father who sent me testifies about me. There's your two. You want two? There's two. I testify about myself and my Father testifies about me. This claim is infuriating for these religious leaders. The very claim like he was making earlier. Jesus says, my father is working until now, and I'm working. And they wanted to kill him because he was making himself equal with God. Here he says, I judge, and my father judges. I testify, and the father testifies. Two reasons that my claim is valid. Number one, I am who I am. And the number two reason, the testimony testimony that my father corroborates. And of course, their response is predictable. Verse 19, they asked him, where is your father? Ridicule, sarcasm, mockery. They may have been calling him an illegitimate child. They may have been mocking the fact that nobody knew his father because his father was long dead by the time his ministry began. We don't really know what they were saying, but it was intended to be scornful mockery. Where is your father? Jesus answered, you don't know my father or me. If you knew me, you would know my father also. But you don't know me. You don't know my father. You wouldn't know God if he came right up to you. You don't know my father. Back in chapter 5, he had similar words in verse 23. If you don't honor me, you don't honor the father who sent me. Later, he says to his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. This is the final insult for these religious leaders. They prided themselves in knowing God. They knew God better than anyone, right? They knew the scriptures inside out. But Jesus says to them, you don't know him at all. This is a devastating statement to them. This is a characterization of the leadership of Judaism in the time of Christ. They didn't know God at all. Still true today of, of those who reject Jesus. So again, they're so infuriated. They want to seize him and kill him, but they can't. They tried three times in chapter 7, unsuccessfully, they can't because his hour had not yet come. He's in a divine schedule. They can't do a thing. And then Jesus' next statement is very final. He said to them again, I'm going away. You will look for me and you will die in your sin. Where you go, where I go, you cannot come. That's pretty final. Right? You will die in your sin. Earlier he said, I'm I'm going to be around for a little while. If there's still time and, and only hours, may, uh, maybe days later, he says, your ignorance is confirmed. It's willful. It's a product of your unbelief in the face of all this revelation. We know how extreme the rejection was because they even attributed what he did to the works of Satan. He said, I'll go away, not six months from then, but as far as they were concerned, he was gone. You will seek me. You know, that's the horror of being lost. Hell is where you know finally who you need and who you need to seek, but you can't find. That's why there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's where I go. You cannot come. You will die in your sin. I want to close by taking a look at chapter 12 because I think it ties it nicely together. In chapter 12, 35 to 36, 
It's a good concluding scripture. So Jesus says to them just before his last supper with his disciples, he said to them, you're going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light for darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they're going. Believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of the light. That's the cry, isn't it? The same thing he says in chapter 8. But what's so stunning here is immediately in verse 36, when he had finished speaking, Jesus left and he hid himself from them. They didn't have much time. Believe now or I'm gone. It's a sense of urgency. And he hid himself. Verse 37 explains, even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, still they would not believe in him. Was that a shock to God? No. (laughs) It was a fulfillment of prophecy. It was fulfilled in the word of Isaiah, who said, Lord, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they couldn't believe. They wouldn't believe. And now what? They couldn't believe. Isaiah 6 says, he has blinded their eyes, hardened their hearts, so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted. And I heal them. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and spoke of them. Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 6 is a prophecy of Jesus being rejected and then God rejecting the rejectors. What a sad reality. The light of the world, the only light, is Jesus. Walk in the light or experience this darkness forever. So for those of you who are in darkness right now, I don't don't know if you know this, but God sees everything. There's no darkness in him and there's nothing that you can hide from God. You may be able to hide something from your spouse, from your parents, your teachers, but you can never hide anything from God. He sees everything. And Jesus invites you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. So Jesus' final, finally Jesus' statement, I'm the light of the world. What he was saying is in your darkest moment, in your most empty moment, I show up and I illuminate the dark nights. I begin to fill the void I set you on a path and begin to walk with you into a life of purpose. I'm not, the la- I'm not the shark that you think I am. I've actually come to have relationship with you. I've come to bring you into my kingdom of marvelous light. And that's the invitation for every one of us here today. Let's come into the marvelous light of Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, You are light. You wrap yourself in light. And you are inviting us out of the darkness into your marvelous kingdom of light. God, I pray for each person in this room today, God, that you would shine in in their lives, in their hearts, God, and any dark part, God, that you would illuminate. You would bring hope. You would bring life. You would bring healing where healing is needed, God, where sorrow has overtaken anyone, God, I pray that you would shine your light and bring joy. Where there is hopelessness, God, would you shine your light and bring hope? God, you are the true light. And God, I pray that at the same time, those of us who believe, who have accepted your message, God, that we would be reflectors of your light to those around us. 
God, you said that we are called to be the salt and the light of the, of the world as well, as we reflect your light to those around us, God. So would you do that in us, God? God, I pray that every person in this place, God, would feel and know the presence of your Holy Spirit even now talking to them. God, I pray that we would leave this place not the same, but changed by the power of your word and the power of your Holy Spirit. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.